right, welcome everybody. 7.15, time for us to start. And uh, we will be looking at the end of chapter 2 in Daniel. So if you have your Bible, if you want to turn to Daniel chapter 2, the third week of our 12 weeks together going through the 12 chapters of Daniel. Those of you that are here for the first time, you've only missed two sessions. Those two sessions will be posted on our website this week. They are not as yet, <clears throat> but uh, they will be this week, along with the one that we're recording right now and all the rest. So if you missed any and you need to catch up, you can do it that way. And I want to uh, just fairly quickly review then what Daniel's about and what we've covered, and then we'll uh, move on in looking at uh, a passage by passage the end of chapter 2. But we saw the very first week that the book of Daniel is about God's sovereignty his control over his world, both now and into the future. Chapters 1 through 6 of Daniel are about God's present control because they're about the present situation that Daniel and his friends were in in captivity in Babylon. But then beginning in chapter 7, chapter 7 through 12, it's about God's control into the future. So the whole thing is about God's sovereign control of his world half of it about how God was controlling his world at a particular time in the present, in Daniel's present, and then looking forward into the future in the final six chapters. Now, that idea of God being in control of his world is especially significant given the setting of the book of Daniel. You'll remember that it's about uh, captivity in a faraway land in, in Babylon. And so Nebuchadnezzar had taken uh, captive uh, choice Israelites, uh, deported them from Jerusalem to Babylon. First chapter tells us that he wanted to select uh, young men who were uh, particularly able, particularly fit, and Daniel and his three friends fit in that category, and they are, they are named in the first, first chapter. And then there was after that, uh, in 586 B.C., a mass deportation of Jews to uh, Babylon. And so 586 is usually the year that marks the Babylonian captivity, even though Daniel and his friends were taken captive in 605 B.C. So Nebuchadnezzar took some. He, he gradually took some. He started a siege of Jerusalem in 588 B.C. and then had, by 586, done a mass deportation uh, to, uh, to Babylon. So the setting of the book of Daniel then is these teens, Daniel and his, his friends, who are in captivity in a pagan country, and their behavior demonstrates how faith in the sovereignty of God, in particular Israel's God, Yahweh, and we looked uh, in the, the first week, or we looked at last week, excuse me, how Daniel uh, makes sure to use Yahweh as the personal name of God. And so here they are, they're in this pagan land, in a faraway place, and they demonstrate how their faith in Yahweh motivates their behavior while they're in that foreign land. And there's a lesson there for us, how our faith in God ought to motivate us in how we behave as really minorities. God's people are always minorities, and the Bible tells us that we are aliens and strangers in a foreign land. Now make no mistake, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, intended to show the superiority of his pagan gods to that of the God of Israel, Yahweh. 
And that's why you may remember in chapter 1, he took some vessels out of the temple in Jerusalem and then took them back and installed them in the temple to one of his gods in Babylon. Now he took some. He left some, we saw, in order to placate the, the Jews so that they wouldn't be in full rebellion. But he took enough to try to show the superiority of his gods to that of their god. And so he takes these vessels and he puts them in a temple in Babylon devoted to his, one of the chief gods of Babylon, Marduk. And you remember Marduk is also referred to as, as Baal in the Old Testament. And so devoted was Nebuchadnezzar to Marduk that he named his son after, after this Babylonian god. Nebuchadnezzar himself was named after another Babylonian god, Nebo. And these teens, Daniel and his associates, refused the king's food. Do you remember why they refused to participate in the, the king's food? It was not because of the lack of nutrition or something like that, but rather uh, the meal would identify them with uh, the, the paganism and their pagan gods. And so they refused to participate in that and imply by that participation their approval. But Babylon had a serious assimilation program for these young people who were taken captive. It included changing their names. So chapter 1 tells us that Daniel and his three friends had their names changed. And all of their names, all of their Hebrew names, had God in it. It involved their relationship to God somehow, but then their Babylonian names, of course, secularized them. God allowed these young men to excel in comparison to the others in in Babylon. Daniel was given the ability, chapter 1 and verse 17 says, to uh, understand visions and dreams of, of all sorts. And Daniel was in Babylon for at least 70 years because he went in 605 BC. And then the Bible tells us at the end of chapter 1 that he was there until the first year of Cyrus, the king. Well, we're going to see tonight that Cyrus. Be, became uh, king in 539 B.C. And so Daniel was there over, over 70, 70 years. Now it doesn't say, as I noted last week, it doesn't say at the end of chapter 1 that, that Daniel was there only until the first year of King Cyrus because later in the book of Daniel it tells us that he had a, a dream or he interpreted a dream during the third year of the reign of Cyrus. So the end of chapter 1 says he was there until the first year of Cyrus' reign, but then we find out later he's still there. And as I mentioned last week, it's like, you know, a mom saying to the kids, uh, you be good until I get home. Doesn't mean after I get home, then all bets are off and you can act any way you want. And so he was there until that time and and sometime after. Then chapter 2, we saw last week, begins with Nebuchadnezzar having dreams that troubled him and this was early in, in his reign, in fact, in the third year of his reign. One dream in particular stood out as chapter 2 and verse 31 says he saw an awesome, a vision of an awesome image. And tonight we're going to consider that dream that he had and its interpretation. Chapter 2 and verse 2 says that Nebuchadnezzar called uh, the wise men of Babylon together. And he told them to tell him what it was that he had dreamed. Now, that was not what he would usually do. He would usually call them together and say, I had a dream, here was the dream, what's it mean? 
and then they would lie. They would just make stuff up that couldn't otherwise be proven false. It was impossible to, to verify, and so it was a pretty good gig for them. But this time, he wants them to actually tell not just the interpretation, but the dream itself. In verses 5 and 8 of chapter 2, the King James Version says, Nebuchadnezzar told them that the thing is gone from me. So he gathers these guys together and he says, I want you to tell me what the dream was. And he says, the thing is gone from me. And that's the way it reads in the King James. And so that's caused a lot of people to interpret it as he forgot what the dream was because the thing is gone from me. I forgot what it is. But in the NIV, New American Standard and others, if you look at verses 5 and 8 of chapter 2, it doesn't say the thing is gone from me. It says what I have said is, is firm. That is, it's gone from me. I've said it. This is the way it's going to be. You guys are going to have to tell me what the, the dream, dream was. And that was despite their protests. He says, if you don't tell me the dream... I'll have you cut into pieces. And history tells us he meant it. He had the power to do it, and he had actually done that sort of thing. But uh, they protest. They protest that this violates the UAW contract, United Austra Astrology Workers. You can't tell us to tell you the dream. That's not part of the deal. That is not our job, okay? Your job is to tell us what you dreamed. Our job is to lie to you. That's the contract. In verses 10 and 11, chapter 2, the astrologers answered the king, There's not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. So they protest, but they protest to no avail. Young King Nebuchadnezzar was probably testing these older guys because he suspected that they had been scamming, scamming him early on. In fact, notice that the younger guys, Daniel and his friends, are not around in chapter 2 when this whole back and forth takes place. And so it's the older guys that Nebuchadnezzar is, is challenging because, as I say, he probably suspected them of a scam. John Walvoord, the uh, longtime, now with the Lord, president of Dallas uh, Seminary, said in his uh, commentary on Daniel, he said this, It's entirely possible the wise men were much older than the king, having served Nebuchadnezzar's father. It would be understandable that the king might have previously been somewhat frustrated by these older counselors and may had a real desire to be rid of them in favor of younger men who he would choose himself. Nebuchadnezzar might well have doubted their sincerity, their honesty and capability. He may have even questioned some of their superstitious practices. It's significant that the younger men, such as Daniel and his companions, were not present. And so he tells them to do this. They protest. Nobody can do this. And in verse 13 of chapter 2, uh, a a group is sent to let others know, Daniel and his friends, that all of the wise men are to be, to be killed. That's going to include Daniel and his companions. They're going to be put to death because uh, Nebuchadnezzar has had this dream and nobody uh, is telling him what it is. But Daniel requests to speak to the king. 
And his audience with the king is granted. Now, how is that? Think about that for a minute. Here's this, here's this young man <clears throat> from Jerusalem who says, don't kill anybody yet. Let me talk to the king. And then the Bible tells us that he gets a chance to talk to the king. Now, why is it that Daniel gets a chance to talk to the king? Well, remember back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, here's what it says. It says that the king would talk with them, that is, Daniel and his three friends. And he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And so Daniel says, allow me to talk to the king, and he's granted this audience with the king because, chapter 1 tells us, he had already made a very favorable impression upon Nebuchadnezzar. And apparently his request is the request uh, that he gives through this audience that he has with Nebuchadnezzar is granted because verse 17 of chapter 2 says Daniel returned to his friends. So Daniel talks to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 17, he goes back to his friends and he says, Now let's pray that God will grant us the dream and the interpretation. And they all, and they all pray. Now, I just want you to mark that down. The need for them to ask God for this. The need for, for them to pray. And, and why do you think that that is, that is singled out here, that that's emphasized, that they had to ask God in order for this to happen? Well, if you, if you read carefully, uh, you, you'll see that this is all about God being in control. And we're going to see in just a bit when Daniel gives the dream and the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar, he is careful to say, the God of heaven, there is a God in heaven who reveals things. He's careful to deflect the credit from himself and to God. And at the very beginning of this, he has to ask God for this ability along with, along with his friends. And it's all about making sure that God receives the glory. And so in verse 19 of chapter 2, it tells us during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And so they pray, God answers, and the mystery is revealed to Daniel. Now we're going to see <clears throat> what happened after that going through chapter 2, but I want to stop here. The mystery was revealed to, to Daniel. You know that most of your Old Testament is written in Hebrew. <clears throat> we saw last week that there is a few portions of your Old Testament that are written in Aramaic, and we're in one of them. From chapter 2 and verse 4 uh, all the way to the end of chapter 7, it's written in Aramaic. But there is a translation of the Old Testament. I mean, there are several, but one uh, very famous translation of the Old Testament, translating the Hebrew and then these uh, few Aramaic sec sections, translating it from Hebrew Aramaic into, into Greek. So there actually is a, there's a translation of your Old Testament in Greek, and of course your New Testament was originally written in Greek. And so you'll have a number of equivalent words from the Old Testament and your New Testament when you compare the Greek of, of both. Well, here's one of those. It says that the mystery was revealed, and the Septuagint, 
which is the name of the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Sometimes you'll see it called the LXX, just those three letters, and that's because those are Roman numerals. L is 50, X is 10, so 70. <clears throat> and it's because 70 uh, scholars translated the Old Testament into Greek, and so it's sometimes just called 70 or the LXX, Septuagint. And so I looked up the Septuagint to see the word, the Greek word mystery used in Daniel chapter 2. And it's the Greek word mousterion. And it's used a number of times in your New Testament. And I just want to take a minute to explain it because it turns out to be a really important concept <coughs> in your New Testament. And the way it's used here in Daniel chapter 2 shows how it's actually intended to be understood <coughs> in the New Testament as well. So we're going to look at a New Testament passage that, that uses mousterion. But before we turn to Ephesians 3 and consider Ephesians 3, how do you, when you think of the word mystery, what do, what do you think of? You think of a riddle, right? Uh, or something that you're trying to solve. But that's not what mousterion means. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I am, not, I am not here to help, okay? <laughs> After you're done here, there's the Kids for Truth class to go to. <laughs> No, wait a minute. I'm just saying, I'm not expecting anybody to know the Greek word, okay? But I mean, you're, you're welcome to that. But mousterion, it's just, you know, you transliterate that as opposed to translate. You just transliterate it, and it would be M-U-S-T-E-R-I-O-N. M-U-S-T-E-R-I-O-N. Mousterion, okay? So that's a, the Greek word, translated English, mystery. And when we see the English word mystery... Most of us think riddle, puzzle, something to solve. But you can see from the context of Daniel that the mystery was made known to Daniel. And so this, this word mystery, mysterion, in Daniel means something that was previously unknown that has now been made known, has now been revealed. Something previously unknown that has now been revealed. Now, why does that matter? If you look at Ephesians 3, look at Ephesians chapter 3. <clears throat> verse 2. In fact, look at verse 1 just for a second. Ephesians 3 and verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, dash. So it breaks off. So he starts, and then the NIV has this dash there. Why does it have this dash? Well, here's why. Look down at verse 14. Notice the words that verse 14 start with. For this reason I kneel before the Father. So, it's in verse 1, he started to say that. For this reason, I, Paul, prisoner, kneel before the Father, but he's just overwhelmed with the thought of what he's been going through in chapters 1 and 2. And the grand plan of God for the salvation of his people. 
And so in verses 2 through 13, he just kind of breaks off his thought. That's why there's a dash there. For this reason, and then he just takes off. And this is a really cool parenthesis he's got there from verses 2 through 13. I mean, it's mar- absolutely marvelous stuff. But that's what he's doing. And so he breaks off in verse 2. He says, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery. And this is that same word. It's translated from Daniel chapter 2 as musterion. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. And then he goes on to say what this mystery is. Look at verse 6. Well, let's just read verse 4. In reading this then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. You see from Daniel, and now you see from Paul here, that this this word mystery, it's not a puzzle, it's not a riddle. It's something that had previously not been made known, that has now been revealed. And what had not been made known in the past? That Gentiles are going to be part of something called the body. And what is another word for the body in your, in your New Testament? The church. And there's a reason that uh, that mystery had not been made known in times past. Because there was no church. There was no church in the Old Testament. The church began, and if you were with us a week ago Sunday, in our 930 hour, I took so, some pains to show that the church began... Uh, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And so now the church begins this new thing. And the church begins in Jerusalem with just Jews, but now through the ministry primarily of Paul, preaching to the Gentiles, now the Gentiles are being brought into this. And Paul is saying, God has revealed that to me, and I'm making it known to you. Now you say, I don't care about any of that, except that there are people who think the church was... The church was in the Old Testament. And there are people who think that the church is now the new Israel in the New Testament. And I'm just going to say it this way. They're wrong about that, okay? That there's Israel in the Old Testament. There's the church in the New Testament. And God is working his mission through the church now, according to Romans chapter 11, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And then God will turn his attention again to Israel. When we get to Daniel chapter 9, you will see that God has seven years in particular, seven really important years, where he's going to focus his attention back on Israel after the church is done, after the church is, is gone. Okay? So that's this really important word, mystery. So if you're back at Daniel chapter 2 then, it's, mystery is not a puzzle, not a riddle. It's something that had not been made known that's now been made known because God has revealed it. And God does that for Daniel by revealing to him the content of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and giving him the interpretation. In verses 20 through 23, 
as a result of Daniel and his friends praying now, God, give this to us, God grants that, and then they praise God. Verses 20 through 23 say this, Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we ask of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. And notice, I mean, that's a marvelous prayer, one, a praise. But notice, this is the God of heaven. And in chapter 2, he uses that phrase several times. And the idea there is, this is the real deal. This is the real God. Not Marduk, not Nebo. This is the true and living God. This is the God of heaven. And in verse 23, this is the God of history. This is the God who made the world. This is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You are the God of my fathers. And then in verse 24, he says, because now he's gotten this and they have now come to execute. In verse 24 of chapter 2, Daniel says, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. You're a Jew. (laughs) You've been hauled captive into Babylon. There's a chance for these dudes to be slaughtered. And you say, don't kill them. This would have been a perfect spot, would it not? And after all, they're a bunch of pagans. And God has judged pagan, pagan nations in the history of Israel up to this time, plenty of times, right? I mean, God, God used Joshua to go into the promised land. The Canaanites were already there. They were killed. So why, uh, why does he do that? Why does, why does Daniel say, do not execute them, even though God is going to execute all unbelievers at, at one time? He had already done that. You would think that uh, he, may, he may want that. Elijah killed the prophets of, of Baal in the past. So why not? Why the difference between the way God had jo- Joshua treat pagans, the way Elijah treated the prophets of Baal, and now Daniel saying, don't kill these guys. Any thoughts? Why is that? I mean, God was just feeling especially nice that day and merciful. Well, remember where Daniel is. Daniel is not, Daniel's not in the nation. The nation has been deported. The people have been deported from the, the promised land. They're in a foreign land. And the, the law of Israel is the law for Israel. And he's not in Israel. And it is not his task... And it's not our task. This is, this is important. It was not Daniel's task, and it is not our task to force truth on others. That's why, we don't, that's why we don't do that in America, thankfully. And that's why Daniel was not doing that in, in Babylon. Now, there's going to come a time 
when God is going to force, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But that's going to come in the fourth kingdom that Daniel's going to see in this dream. And there's going to be a stone that is not made with hands, not cut out by human hands that Daniel saw, that is going to break all of the kingdoms of the world into pieces. And at that time, everybody is going to be forced to do that. But not until that time. And Daniel understands that. Now, that fact refutes something called theonomy. Theonomy. What is that? Theos means God. Uh, is the word for God. Greek word for God. Namos, Greek word for law. Theonomy. God's law. And if you were to Google theonomy, you would find that there are lots of smart people who believe that God's law given to Israel is still operative for us today. And those who believe every piece of it, including execution of homosexuals, I mean, the whole thing, are called theonomists. And uh, you need to understand, Daniel understood that that was not the case. And we are in the church... Christ has done away with the law. Every now and then I get somebody who comes to the church. I had a guy do this a couple years ago. He came regularly. But then he started telling me that, you know, the church, not just our church, church is, don't talk about the law enough. And I said, well, you know, there's a reason for that. (laughs) Romans 10.5 says Christ is the end of the law. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And so the law operative to Israel is not operative to to Babylon. And let me just beat on it a little bit further. When I say the law, what do you guys think of? You think of the Ten Commandments. You say, so it's okay to murder people? No, the thou shalt not murder is actually repeated in the New Testament. One. In fact, Nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. Only one is not. Do you know the one that's not? Is the Sabbath command. And that's why we don't gather on Saturday, but rather we gather on the first day of the week. The Sabbath was the seventh day of the week. And so, no, it's not okay to to murder people, but the truth of the matter is, friends, and get this, we are not under the law. And we are not only not under the law, we're not under any part of the law. None of it, nada. And so what some people try to do is divide the law into three parts. There's the moral law, and the ceremonial law, and the civil law. And they say, we're not under the, the civil law, so all the penalties and you know executing homosexuals and all that, we're not under that. And we're not under the ceremonial law, you know the sacrifices and all that stuff, but we're still under the moral law. And the Bible says, James chapter 4 and verse 17, if you break one commandment, you're guilty of how much? And you know why? Because the law all goes together. You don't get to split it up into three pieces. God never split it into three pieces, so you don't get to split it into three pieces either. All right, I feel much better. Now go back to <laughs> Daniel, Daniel chapter 2. All right. <laughs> now see, I said Paul had a really cool parenthesis. If you want to lie and say my, my parenthesis is cool, that'd be fine with me. So, don't destroy these wise men of Babylon. 
And there's going to come a time when all unbelievers will be destroyed. This is not it. It'll come in the fourth kingdom, not in this first of the four world kingdoms. And down in 20, uh, verse 28, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And remember, again, he says, the God in heaven. And the reason he's doing that is to make sure that God gets the glory, to make sure that Nebuchadnezzar and everyone else understands who it is that is making this happen, causing this to happen, none other than the true and living God. So in verse 28, he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Uh, or at the beginning, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are, are these. And so who gets, the, uh, who gets the credit? It's God. And Nebuchadnezzar has called all the enchanters and the sorcerers and the astrologers and all of the wisest people in Babylon, and none of them can do what Daniel's going to do. And it would be very easy for Daniel to take the credit. But he makes it a point to make sure that God receives the credit. Verse 31. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. Now, remember uh, we said back in verse 5 and verse 8 of chapter 2, you know, the King James says that, uh, the King James says, the thing is gone from me, but the NIV says that what I've said is firm in, that, in the translation. So it's not that he forgot the dream, but he's testing these guys. And here's one of the reasons, contextually, that many of us believe that, is because notice that the dream, the statue was lard, large and extraordinary. Its appearance was awesome. There's no chance that Nebuchadnezzar would forget this, this statue. So he sees this statue in this dream. He knows what he saw, but he doesn't know what it means. He tests these guys. They fail. Daniel prays to God, Daniel, Daniel passes. Verse 32, the head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And so Nebuchadnezzar must have been over, almost overwhelmed as he, as he reads what Daniel's going to go on to say. If you look at Verse 37, he says, here's, here's the interpretation. Verse 37, you, king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. <laughs> and you're Nebuchadnezzar. There is no way the size that your head has now swelled is going to be able to get out of whatever room they were, they were in. He must have been flattered. It was only six years, six years before this that uh, the Bible tells, Jeremiah says, to the kings of Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, and Sidon, that Nebuchadnezzar has been granted sovereignty over the entire earth. In fact, he says, all the nations, says Jeremiah, will serve Nebuchadnezzar. And even the animal kingdom is under his dominion. The wild animals of the field will serve him, Jeremiah chapter 27. 
And when Nebuchadnezzar began his siege of Jerusalem in 588, God assured the Jews in Jeremiah 37. Now listen, Jeremiah 37 and verse 10. God told the Jews, quote, Even if there were only wounded men left among them, the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar's guys, even if they're only wounded men, each man in his tent, they would rise up and burn this city with fire. So God was saying to his people, you're going to be judged for your disobedience, and the instrument I'm going to use is Nebuchadnezzar, and this is how powerful he is. Even if they had wounded men, they would still be able to accomplish this. Now notice what else is being said. I'm the one sending Nebuchadnezzar to do this. Nebuchadnezzar is still under my control. And so the head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar. And then it's breast and arms are of, of silver. And so here's Nebuchadnezzar. You know, head is swelled. I'm the king of kings. I'm in charge of everything. And then Daniel goes on to say in verse 39, After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. How is it possible that another kingdom is going to rise if I'm the king of kings? And how is it possible that another kingdom is going to rise that's inferior to mine? How is it possible that any kingdom is going to be able to take over? So here's Nebuchadnezzar. He's reveling in the fact that he's this head of gold and he had to be shattered when he heard that news. But the answer to how that could happen had already been given by Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 27. Listen to what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah 27 and verse 7. All the nations shall serve him, Nebuchadnezzar, and his son and his grandson, until the time comes that many nations and great kings will make him their servant. Now historically, you know how this went down. Nebuchadnezzar dies in 562 B.C. And there's a deterioration of the management of the kingdom after that. Remember I said he had a son that he named after Marduk? His son, Marduk, takes over. But his son is pretty much clueless. And then there were a couple of usurpers to the throne. And finally his daughter's son, Belshazzar. Remember Belshazzar? Chapter 5, we'll see him. He's the guy who saw the hand, literally the handwriting on the wall, right? So these are the guys who, who came after Nebuchadnezzar. And by 539 B.C., when Cyrus takes over, and the Persians uh, defeat the Babylonians, the qualities of dictatorial autocracy that Nebuchadnezzar enjoyed for 43 years, he reigned for 43 years, that was all gone. Belshazzar was morally rotten, and he was the one, chapter 5 tells us, was weighed in God's balances and found, found wanting. And so here comes this smaller kingdom, but it's able to take over because the kingdom of Babylon had deteriorated. So its belly and its thighs are of bronze, and that represents the Persian Empire, 539 B.C. It's explained as a in verse 39 is another third kingdom of bronze, or excuse me, um, I'm sorry, second kingdom is Persia, and uh, silver, chest, and arms. And then if you look at verse uh, 39, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. And this one is the Greek empire. 
334 B.C. Alexander the Great. And all of his conquests. And each metal, gold, silver, now bronze, an inferior metal, representing in some respects an inferior kingdom. Nothing could compare to the splendor of, of, of Babylon, really. And so Alexander, 334 B.C., he conquered the silver kingdom of the uh, Persians, but also the regions to the east and as far as, as India. And so all of the earth was conquered by this bronze kingdom that was later Alexander. Now we're going to see in detail in chapter 8 information about the Greek Empire and Alexander and what was accomplished. And then verse 33. Back to verse 33. Legs of iron, feet partly of iron, and partly of baked clay. And so this fourth kingdom of iron gets more airtime than any of the others. From verse 40 to 43, four verses devoted to describing what, uh, what this kingdom is like. And so here's the interpretation of the dream for the fourth kingdom. Verse 40, there will be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay, partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with, <laughs> with, with clay. <laughs> and so there are going to be portions of this fourth kingdom that are iron, that are, that are strong. There are going to be other portions, not so much. And so historically, you look at the Roman Empire, which is this fourth world empire, and you look at it militarily. It's strong, it's strong militarily, but not so much politically. Or you look at its, its people, as we saw in verse 43. It says its people will be a mixture and will not remain united. Rome did a marvelous job of assimilating the people that it conquered into the empire, allowing them to keep their own culture and so on. It's one of the reasons Rome lasted as long as it did, but it could not remain that way forever. And so there was always this uh, Achilles heel, so to speak, and ultimately it ended up uh, resulting in the fall of the fall of Rome. And so Daniel interprets this image, this statue, the head the chest and the arms, the head is Babylon, the chest and the arms are Persia, the, the belly and the thighs are the Greek Empire, and then the legs of iron and clay are the fourth world empire of, of Rome. Look at verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it will itself endure forever. 
This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Now, verses 44 and 45, what is that about? In the time of those kings, the God of heaven is going to establish a kingdom that will crush all of all the rest. What's that about? Well, as we're going to see further in the book of Daniel and then looking at the last book of your Bible, the book of Revelation, where John saw ten, ten kings, a vision of ten kings, and Daniel also has these ten toes, and he's going to have ten horns in Daniel chapter 8, representing these same kingdoms. That The Bible teaches there's going to be a reconfiguration of the Roman Empire in the future. And in the days of those kings, this revived Roman Empire, the God of heaven is going to set up a kingdom. And he is going to smash all the others to pieces. And his kingdom will not end. Now, I want you to see a few things about that. It says he's going to crush all the others. You know, he's given four world empires, Babylon and Persia and Greece and then Rome. Rome's going to be revived and God is going to crush it and he's going to set up his kingdom. But he's going to crush all the others. Well, Babylon's gone and Persia's gone and and Greece is gone, sort of. Because with every one of these, after each succeeding empire, they each took on characteristics of the other. They each allowed, you heard what I said about the Romans, they were very good at assimilating the conquered peoples by allowing them to keep some of their culture. All of them did that. But when this final kingdom comes, set up by God himself, there will be no vestige of the old kingdoms left. There will be nothing carried on from Babylon. In fact, that's why in the book of Revelation you see Babylon reappear. Revelation chapter 17 speaks of Babylon yet again because there are, because there are portions of Babylon and of its paganism that still remain and God is going to crush all of it. Now, here's the second thing I want you to get. Notice in verses 44 and 45 that this all happens in a cataclysmic way, a sudden way. The kingdom of God does not come bit by bit, piece by piece. The kingdom of God comes when the king returns, destroys his enemies, and sits on a throne in Jerusalem. And there are people who believe, just like theonomy, there are people who believe, all right, this is my last term for the night, okay? So what was it? Mousterion, theonomy, and now post-millennialism. What is that? Well, millennial means a thousand. A millennium is a thousand. And Revelation chapter 20 refers six times to a period of 1,000 years that will be the duration of the kingdom of God. And then we will go into the what we call the eternal state. But a thousand-year kingdom, so sometimes called the millennium. Now, post 
millennial means this. Post means what? After. So post-millennial means Christ returns after the kingdom has been established. So Christ is gradually enlarging his kingdom, creating his kingdom. And when the kingdom is established, Christ will then return post-after. Is that what you read in Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 and 45? God's going to come and destroy them cataclysmically. The kingdom of man will be converted to the kingdom of God because God is going to destroy his enemies and only those who are loyal to the true and living God will be in that kingdom. And so post-millennialism is wrong. Just like theonomy is wrong. And by the way, the same people believe both. Uh, theonomists are post-millennialists. Um, so if it's not post-millennial, then what is it? And pre means before, and it means Christ is going to return before the kingdom is set up. Now to me, most important, that just makes biblical sense because that's the way the Bible presents it. It also makes logical sense that before you have the kingdom, you've got the king. And he comes pre, prior to the establishment of the kingdom, and when Jesus returns, he will establish this kingdom. And verse 44, or excuse me, verse 45, emphasizes the divine nature of this kingdom. The rock cut out of a mountain, not by human hands. And so this kingdom is not the kingdom of man. This is the kingdom of God. Not built by human hands, not built by human ingenuity. God himself will establish this kingdom and it will last forever. Then verse 46, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Now you say, well, Nebuchadnezzar got saved. Praise the Lord. (laughs) (laughs) These kings... These kings were like, hey, whatever works, your God is clearly cool. So here's, but for Nebuchadnezzar, this is just another God in the pantheon of gods. And he's a really cool God, and so your God is, has got all that Marduk, Marduk's got going and more. But this doesn't mean he became uh, a believer. And as we see later, in fact, it's clear that he had not. So he's simply going with the winning team. And this is another winner that he wants on on his team. Verse 48, Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. So, God in his good providence allows Daniel to rise to prominence in Babylon. But do you remember that none of this happens unless Daniel's three friends pray with him? Do you remember that going back to the middle of chapter 2? Daniel went back to them and he said, let's pray that the God of heaven 
will make this thing known. And they pray together, and God answers their prayer. Daniel's the one who goes back and talks to the king, and Daniel's the one who tells him the dream and the interpretation of the dream. Daniel could have easily forgotten his friends here. But notice in verse 49, at Daniel's request, the king appoints his three friends. Now, do you remember when Joseph rose to prominence in Pharaoh's court that uh, the, the cupbearer forgot about, forgot about Joseph? It's easy to forget about who got there with you or who helped you get to prominence. Daniel didn't do that, again showing his, his character. And I want you to, I want you to see as, as well that they've got their names, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. These are their, their Babylonian names used here because they are the administrators over the province of, of Babylon. But throughout, we've been reminded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are really these three Jewish boys that came from Jerusalem. And throughout the entire thing, the reason that they have risen to this position is not because of them, but because of God and the fact that they prayed to this God and he answered and he answered their prayer. With Daniel now firmly established as Nebuchadnezzar's chief counselor, at the king's court, says verse 49, and with his three friends over the administration of the province of Babylon, we can understand how no subsequent kingdom could compare with the quality of the one that Daniel and these guys are in. I mean, you've got Nebuchadnezzar with all his fabulous authority that God has granted him. And now Nebuchadnezzar has working for him Daniel and these three young men who God has given this great ability. It was indeed this head of gold. But what's going to happen? We're going to see in chapter 3, and I encourage you to do your homework for chapter 3. But what's going to happen? Power corrupts. And you guys know the rest. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so God places all of this power in the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. But now his character is going to show. Instead of worshiping the God of of Daniel, in fact, he comes to believe that he is a sort of God to himself. And he takes this power to himself and he he determines and demands to be to be worshipped. And we'll see what uh, happens in this, in this contest. We already know the outcome, right? But it is a cautionary tale that when we have successes, if we are not careful to give praise to the one who gave that success, the God who caused us to rise can also bring us down as well. And that's what we're going to see in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? All right.